listeners, if you're wondering why I don't recommend the same books all the time, it's because I have a list that says, and you got to pull it back for at least another few months on these titles. (laughs) (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 232. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, our newsletter is the place to go for our news and happenings. That's where I announce live events like the upcoming Summer Reading Guide unboxing. Plus, we make calls for listener feedback and ask for submissions for special episodes like our giftable book recommendations in episode 212. But it's not just news and special events. We send an email every Tuesday with three bookish things I love, one thing I don't, and what I'm reading now. If you want fun, informative, and delightful links to all things books and reading with a little dose of my personal reading habits, then sign up for the weekly newsletter at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. And be sure to do that now, because in two weeks, we're sending all subscribers my ninth annual summer reading guide. This is the answer to what you should read next this summer. And if you think you're signed up but haven't gotten any emails from me lately, let us know so that we can get that straightened out. We do not want you to miss the summer reading guide. Email us at support at modernmrsdarcy.com. Again, if you've never signed up, do that now at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, times are changing quickly these days, and you better believe that's impacting our podcasting lives here at What Should I Read Next Headquarters. When I sat down to talk with today's guest, Judd Ashman, we were still crossing our fingers that we'd get to meet in person at the Gaithersburg Book Festival this spring. Judd is the festival's co-founder, and he's mayor of Gaithersburg. Between then, when we recorded, and today, that event has been canceled due to COVID-19. Today, Judd and I are giving you the Vicarious Literary Festival experience. We're bringing an insider's look at what goes into the planning and establishment of those community book events we've so enjoyed in the past, and that will happen again in the future. Specifically, today we're talking about how the Gaithersburg Book Festival was born. Judd and I also dig into his eclectic personal reading life, from westerns to middle-grade fiction to historical nonfiction, all the way to a book he describes as jaw-droppingly good. And I'm recommending three books to him, like a human, not like an algorithm. That's a joke, but also a totally real concern when literary matchmaking. I'll explain the difference in a little bit. Let's get to it. Judd, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you today. You have a unique perspective on your world and also the literary world. Tell our listeners what it is you do professionally. (laughs) There are several answers to this, actually, because I I think the most notable thing about what I do is that I'm, I'm the mayor of the third largest city in Maryland, Gaithersburg. Maryland's a state with a lot of small cities, and Gaithersburg... Uh, It has about 70,000 residents, which doesn't seem large, but for Maryland, it is number three behind Baltimore and Frederick. And I am the founder and chair of the Gaithersburg Book Festival, which is now um, in its 11th year. And then in my day job, I have a a web design and development and and hosting company uh, because, unfortunately, mayor is not a full-time job, um, although it often seems that way. I think the community expectation is that way. It doesn't pay that way. But I love what I do, and all three hats are fun for me to wear, and and so life is good. I imagine any one of those roles could be a full-time gig. Correct. 
Now, I'd love to hear what came first, your mayoral position (laughs) or your literary festival position. How do those interact for you? I had been in office as a city council member back in 2008. I came up with the idea for the book festival. I had been in office on the city council for about a year, and I brought the idea to my then mayor and fellow members of the council and, and luckily got great support for it. So the festival had been going on for several years before I became mayor, and I wasn't mayor first, but I don't think that having the book festival hurt when I ran for mayor. I think (laughs) generally there's not a lot to be controversial about a book festival. I think people generally liked it and appreciated the cultural opportunity in the city. And so I won't say it didn't help. (laughs) (laughs) What made you think that the Gaithersburg community could benefit from a literary festival? I mean, my community started a flea market that's pretty great, you know, that happens just outside downtown with lots of vendors <laughs> and everything. We don't have a book festival like y'all have yet. So what was what was the thought process behind that? Well, it was sort I like to think it was kind of in my blood. Uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida, then came up to D.C., then Gaithersburg. Miami is the home of the Miami Book Fair International, started by one of my idols, Mitchell Kaplan, who owns Books and Books down in Coral Gables, one of the legendary independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of grew up with the Miami Book Fair around. And then when I came up to D.C., there was a point at which former First Lady Laura Bush and the Librarian of Congress at the time, James Billington, started the National Book Festival, which happened every year on the Mall. For those of you who don't know, the Mall is sort of that grassy area between the Capitol and the Washington Monument. And there was all these big tents, and they got some of the great authors on on the planet to come speak every year. And it was just this wonderful, wonderful day, wonderful experience. And there was a point in 2008 where the Bush administration was leaving and the National Book Festival being a fall event, an election campaign was happening. We didn't know who was going to be elected and whether or not they would continue the National Book Festival. So I was there that day and I remember the Librarian of Congress coming on stage and saying, I implore you to write letters and ask the next administration to continue this event. And I was in the audience. I'd been on the council for for a year at that point. And I thought, what a shame if they were to cancel this event. But why couldn't we do one of our own? And then the juices really started to flow because Gaithersburg is right outside D.C. We're a 25-minute drive. There are tons of great authors, journalists, educators within an hour's drive. Why couldn't we do one of our own? And at the same time, it struck me that we could sort of build a cultural identity for our suburban city with this event. It's a very highly educated area. You know, for years I was riding Metro every day to work. You just go on Metro and you can count how many people are reading books. Everyone's got a book (laughs) in hand. Mm -hmm. I knew the market was there. I just saw it as a great opportunity for our city to sort of plant a flag on the on the cultural map. We call it the Gaithersburg Book Festival, but it would really be a thing for the whole region. And people do come from all over the region and from elsewhere. They are big regional draws. And Judd, I have to admit, even though I've been a devoted reader and attended book events for a very long time, it's only since I started writing books and started getting invited to literary festivals that was the nudge I needed to check them out for myself. I was so glad to finally discover what I had been missing for way too long. Tell me what the literary festival experience is like. Oh, it's dreamy. (laughs) Imagine walking into, in an outdoor place or whatever, walking into an area where there are tents everywhere. And in each tent, there's an author speaking about his or her work, engaging in a conversation. It's, It's like 
reading books and and writing books are both solitary experiences. They're solitary endeavors. And what literary festivals do is they make this giant communal experience. If you ever sort of want to feel gratified, you want to feel optimistic about the future of the written written word, go to a literary festival because there's you're going to run into tons of people who are just like you and you're going to have a discussion with authors that you love and you're going to discover new authors. It's just a wonderful, wonderful, engaging atmosphere. Yes, that's absolutely my experience. Although I have to say, prepare yourself for some hardships if you go for the first time, because you could face the situation where you're looking at the program and two authors you love and adore are speaking on different stages at the same time. This is the kind of dreamy wonderland we've created, where there are so many authors that you love that you might not even get to hear them all. It's really like a series of author events all happening in the same place at the same time. You get to meet the authors. Even when you're standing in line to get your book signed, you're surrounded by people who are interested in the same thing, who love books and reading. It does feel so communal and also so individual to you getting to meet the authors who wrote these books that have been so important to you. Such a great experience. You bring up some really, really good points. In terms of scheduling, I, I know this from both sides because I'm a festival goer and I, and I run a festival. And- Wait, first I have to say the struggle is real, but that is tongue in cheek. Literary festivals <laughs> are an abundance of riches. Yeah. Again, you, you sort of have to sometimes uh, choose between competing priorities. And it's, it, it, you know, I feel, <laughs> yep. I feel like that as mayor sometimes. We, we have an issue before us and you got to choose between competing priorities. But we have 140 authors usually each year. A lot of the programs that we do, the speaking programs are panel. So there'll be several authors on in one panel. There'll be 10 or 11 different programs going on at the same time in different tents at our festival. I get complaints every year, like, why'd you schedule such and such and, and these others at the same time? And it's like, well, we only have so much time. There's just no avoiding that. And I, I feel it as, as a planner and I feel it as, as an attendee. But, you know, the other there are some other elements to book festivals you'll find, too. Like for exhibitors, you can make contact with small publishing houses or even large ones. At our festival, we have workshops for aspiring writers for all ages, for adults and for kids and for teens. We have a, a ton of children's activities, performances, readings. So there's all kinds of things going. So in the span of an eight-hour period where we're programming, we essentially have you know a hundred events. It, we we call it one event, the Gaithersburg Book Festival, but it's like a hundred events. <laughs> Something that I really love about some of the festivals I've been to that are regional is that they really shine a light on local authors. It's so wonderful to see so many authors from the Kentucky area or North Carolina area or Georgia area or Gaithersburg area all together in one place and getting a spotlight that they may not otherwise have. I love how festivals do that. Yeah, we we take a lot of pride in highlighting local authors. We have to strike a balance because in order to get an audience for local authors, we have to get the attendees in. We have to have some better-known draw authors as part of our lineup all different parts of the day, make sure we have people in the door, but once once they're there, they're discovering new authors, whether they're local mm-hmm. or not, but but we do highlight a lot of local authors in the area. Would you tell me about a favorite moment from a past festival? Yes. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will remember Jim Lehrer, the uh, PBS newsman who moder- he was famous for moderating a lot of um, high-stakes presidential debates. And he was at our festival a few years ago. He recently passed, so this this is sort of front of mind. I just had this memory when he passed, I think it was a month or two ago. 
Jim was there. He was just started speaking to a pack tenant at our festival, and a train went by. Our festival's outdoors. It's there's a train track not far away. So when the trains go by, you know, everyone pauses for 30, 40 seconds while the trains go by and then the, the programs start again. As a programmer, I find that mostly annoying, but I'm glad when people find it charming. <laughs> I just happened to be there and I at that tent at that moment and Jim Lair paused while the train went by and then he sort of detoured from the presentation he was making and he talked about every time he hears a train, he remembers what it was like growing up in rural Kansas and he would go to bed at night as a kid and he can hear the trains go by and he just had these visions of getting on one of these trains and visiting the wild, wider world and and having adventures and so the, he talked about being a train buff all his life to me it was such a special personal moment nobody else is getting uh from this really exceptional person that was a, a wonderful a wonderful time for us that sounds charming I do love those moments in interviews or author events or anything I can attend where you feel like you are getting a a unique perspective, you know, a story that the author wasn't planning on sharing, but they're telling the crowd there because it came up. And I just love those special moments that don't feel canned or packaged or planned, but just you had to be there. Absolutely. So do I. And, you know, that's part of what it's what it's all about. They're funny ones, too. I remember in our first (laughs) our first festival. The first big name to sign on to our book festival was Alice McDermott. She's a many-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a National Book Award winner. You know, we were just so thrilled to get Alice because when we were starting out, frankly, we didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) I have stories I can tell you about trying to recruit authors and become a festival from scratch. But Alice was the first one. She, When she signed on, it sort of gave us a legitimacy. And then other authors started saying, oh, Alice McDermott's part of this festival. Okay, I'll sign on. We finally get to the festival day. This is May of 2010. I happened to be there at the moment when Alice was speaking to, to the crowd at her tent. She was at the Q&A part toward the end and someone stood up and I guess they liked what she'd read and they liked what she was talking about. And some sort of older lady stands up and says, can you tell me what your name was again? (laughs) Oh, it just made me laugh. And Alice took it well, thank goodness. But yeah, there are all kinds of great moments. And the other thing that that you may not see behind the scenes is that authors really enjoy festivals. Um, Even if they're they're not necessarily going to have 600 people in front of them like they might if they were doing a solo event, it's probably going to cut into their audience because people are making choices, what have you. They get a chance to network with other authors, which is sort of a rarity, and they also get a chance to meet fans and be part of the atmosphere. So I find authors really enjoy the experience of our festival, and I'm sure they do at others as well. Yes, that's absolutely my experience. And it's so fun to show up in a community and to an event that is clearly an enormous team effort. You really feel like you're a part of something special that people really care about and take pride in. You do. And Gaithersburg's a special place. Like Every year, there's a study done by this group called Wallet Hub, the most diverse cities in the United States. And what they do is they take language diversity, economic diversity, ethnic diversity, and they stir it up into a big pot. And they, they list like of the top 300 big cities and biggest cities in the United States. Gaithersburg is like top five for the last eight years. It's a really interesting place with a ton of diversity in all different ways you look at it. I feel like encouraging books, fostering generations of readers, it's an investment in the community. You know how books 
give us more empathy. It's the it's the most immediate way we can jump into somebody else's thinking and actions and reasoning and consider viewpoints other than our own. Uh, and that gives you empathy and empathy makes you better citizens. And, I'm glad you used the word investment because that's something as a participant that I've been very curious about. It amazes me how communities can invest all these resources into putting on these really incredible events. And yet there are very few events at literary festivals that cost money for the participants. Correct. So clearly you're investing in these things because your community values them and is willing to back that up with a lot of bucks. Would you tell me a little more about that? In most cases, while book festivals take on the name of the city in which they take place, they're not put on or funded by the municipality. Maybe the municipality has a a grant or maybe there's some in-kind donation of venue space or something. We are unusual. I won't say unique. I think the Brooklyn Book Festival may may be similar. We're one of the unusual types where we, as a city, are directly involved in this. We are putting this thing together. And yeah, it's a big investment. As far as book festival budgets go, ours is relatively low. We're probably in the $130,000 to $150,000 a year to put this thing on. Others go higher depending on, you know, whether they're paying for speaker fees, which we we can't afford to do, you know, how fancy the hotels they're putting the authors in Mm -hmm. or, you know, how much of a marketing budget they have and whether they're doing posters. But they are a big investment. Getting back to how most festivals work, they're usually put on either by a bookseller or by like a university or a large media organization like the LA Times Festival of Books. So it's it's unusual for a municipality to do it. I'm proud that we are, and I'm proud that my city council and staff continue to support it in the ways they do. The real secret to our success, though, is our volunteer planning committee. It's kind of like a public-private partnership, and our planning committee does all the programming. We have volunteers who are recruiting the authors, who are putting together the workshops, who are doing the marketing and, and PR work. Our professional staff, our city staff, are doing the logistics. They're ordering the tents and arranging for the sound system and managing the confirmations of our authors. It literally would not work if I said, hey, I have this idea for a book festival, staff take care of it. You guys go recruit authors and put together workshops because you know they're Parks and Rec staff. They're not necessarily book event people. To put it in their hands would be unfair to say the least. So it's worked because we have like two dozen people in the community who love this, who are passionate about putting on this wonderful cultural opportunity. That is really encouraging to hear. Listeners, we've heard from a lot of you who have gotten library volunteer gigs or who now have jobs or volunteer roles with your local book selling or literacy organizations. This is another thing you can seek out in your community and get involved because your community may need you to help bring good authors to town to put on amazing events. Well, Judd, thanks for giving me a little peek behind the scenes. I really appreciate that. Reading clearly must mean a lot to you if this was something that you brought to your community. I'd love to hear a little bit about the background of your reading life. Well, yes, reading has meant a lot to me from as long as I can remember. So is the creative process. I mean, what are the backstories behind the great characters and the and if it's nonfiction, you know, historical figures. I enjoy yeah. hearing those stories, which is why I fell in love with with book festivals. But in terms of my my reading life, I've always loved this quote from David McCullough. He said, you read nonfiction to learn the truth about history. You read literature to learn the truth about human nature. I'm sort of a reading, this is sort of a digression, but one of the joys of being a book festival chair is that, you know, I personally try to 
read as many of our book festival author books as as possible. And that takes me out of a, a comfort zone. Like I'm reading adult fiction and nonfiction, and, but I, I get into teen YA. I get into to children's books, middle grade. Just because I want a sense of who we're hosting at the festival, it's so rewarding. It's so enriching to do that. You explicitly said that the literary festival causes you to read books that are outside of your comfort zone. And yet I'm sure you have books that you have read and loved and really like knew you were going to gravitate towards. How would you describe your reading taste if you had to do it in a couple of sentences? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I love stories where I care about characters and that goes for fiction or nonfiction. I like books that ultimately reflect something about who I am or who we are as a country or as a people or in my case as a person. So that plus David McCullough and we got it. Yeah, there's that one. Learn about the world, learn about human nature. Exactly. Well, Judd, you know what we do here on What Should I Read Next? I do. Are you ready to get into your books? Because I'm dying to hear. Yeah. All right. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. I'm open to any good suggestions. How did you go about choosing these? Depending on what the day is, I'm going to give you different choices because, you know, it's sort of a mood thing. What in what what's front of mind, what's what's coming to mind. In this case, I chose three books that I think tell important, interesting stories of America, but reflecting who we are from very different perspectives. Ooh. The first one I'm choosing, many have probably read and many more have seen the the film, but I would recommend reading the book anyway, and that's The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. And that came out in the late 70s. Like, Tom Wolfe is the only author I could think of I'd consider essential reading in both nonfiction and fiction. The Right Stuff is nonfiction. Tom Wolfe is trying to get inside the heads of pilots and astronauts who are on the, the literal cutting edge of human achievement and experimentation, like, like Chuck Yeager, who's trying to break the sound barrier, uh, people who are trying to go faster and fly higher. And and so what type of person would do this? What drives them and what capacity to overcome rational fear is necessary for these jobs? In other words, like, what's the right stuff? That's the Mm -hmm. central conceit of the book. And he gets into... He gets really into the heads of these astronauts and pilots. He also gets into the heads of families, like, how are they dealing with it? The book reads like a novel. The characters, they jump off the page and and the pages turn like at mock speed. It's 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 really combustible. So even if you've seen the film, I highly recommend reading the book, The Right Stuff. It holds up. It's just a wonderful piece of work. I feel like I don't say this a lot. It usually goes the other way. But I have seen the film and I haven't read the book. And the reason is that my son for school read the book and then wanted to see the film. So I was in the living room that night. Nonfiction that reads like a novel about a topic I don't know anything or know much about, but is completely fascinating on the page. I love those kinds of books. Right, right. And and you've heard and read books that I, I look at as the genre, the nonfiction novel. I think the first one was In Cold Blood. That, that's widely regarded as the first nonfiction novel. But, you know, there are, there are modern ones like Devil in the White City and Blood of the Orange Moon. I love that genre. The right stuff is jaw-droppingly awesome. Jaw-droppingly awesome? Okay, that's high praise. (laughs) Adding it to the list. What did you choose for your next book, Jen? Next book is Lonesome Dove, uh, Larry McMurtry, 1985, I think. Lonesome Dove, this is like a masterpiece. It's a novel. It's a masterpiece in storytelling and character building. 
It's Western tale, populated with characters of complexity and charm. Stories built around two old men, sort of irritable former Texas Rangers who set off on an ambitious cross-country cattle drive. The journey, which, you know, sometimes has us, like, meandering over dusty plains and sometimes, like, builds to a heart-thumping stampede. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely unforgettable. Again, this one was also adapted. It was a miniseries. Did you see Lonesome Dove? I did not see Lonesome Dove, but I just read the book in the past five or six years, and I didn't think it was for me until a friend who I was really surprised to hear was reading a Western said, oh, this is a great book. It doesn't matter what genres you do or do not enjoy. So yes to the book, loved it, no to the miniseries. But tell me about it. It's another case where it was a pretty good adaptation. Great cast, Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones, head up, you know, Diane Lane and Steve Buscemi and lots, lots of people that everybody loves. And it was well done, but to me... You're not immersed as you are as when you're reading the novel. And frankly, I don't know if I've ever cared about and fallen for characters as much as I did with Lonesome Dove. It's like, you know, the prose is simple, but it's lyrical and it plots really well woven together. Um, it's just a, a masterpiece. And the reaction I hear from so many readers like me who don't gravitate towards the Western genre. I mean, I didn't read it for a long time because my grandfather loved Louis L'Amour books. He, you know, devoured them like his survival depended on it. And I thought, <laughs> I don't I don't read that kind of stuff, so why would I read this? But I've heard so many readers say some version of I didn't think I'd be like a sobbing mess over the fate of two fictional cowboys, but wow. You know, I reluctantly admit I was reduced to the same, so. <laughs> <laughs> no shame. No shame here. My next book, Chimamanda and Gozi Adiche, whose book Americana is my third pick. We've we've had a chance to host her, and it was a tremendous honor. Oh, I wish I could have been there. Yeah, she she was great. She packed the house. People, people were lined up way in advance for that talk. It was wonderful. So... I loved Americana. I wanted to pick something more recent so both you and your readers wouldn't think I live entirely in the 80s and 70s. But Americana is like, at once, it's a quiet love story, but it's also like a beautifully articulated treatise on American society and race and the immigrant experience. And again, the sort of broader theme of these three books is it's telling us something about America. This is a different and I think important perspective. It tells the story of a young Nigerian couple who emigrate. The girlfriend, Ifemelu, comes to America, and the boyfriend goes to London. He was planning to come to America, but he gets caught up in 9-11 security and such. The book follows both of them, and they make observations about their new worlds that are that are funny and sharp and poignant. And to me, as I was reading this, I'm like, you know what this, this is kind of like is way back when Alexis de Tocqueville... People may remember he visited America in like the 1830s and then came back to France and put his observations into a book, Democracy in America. This guy who spent a short time in America captured the essence of American life and culture so completely that the book became a classic. And I feel like Americana, while it's entirely different, we have this immigrant observational genre thing going on. Um, in this case, Adiche is Nigerian and her perspective uh, really comes through in the form of a blog her main character writes. She takes the story further when she brings the characters back to Nigeria and the experience of repatriation like, how has the Western life changed them and, and the way they see things? It, anyway, it's beautifully done. I couldn't recommend that book enough, and she's a wonderful writer. She's done other, other good stuff, but that one I just thought was spectacular. 
That's my favorite of hers as well. But I'm eagerly anticipating what I hope will be another novel coming soon. Me too. She's on the list of authors that I can't stop talking about on What Should I Read Next? And so I have to make myself not make them one of the three featured picks. Listeners, if you're wondering why I don't recommend the same books all the time, it's because I have a list that says, Anne, you got to pull it back for at least another few months on these titles. (laughs) That's funny. Judd, now tell me about a book that's not for you. This is a tough question for me because it's not to say that there aren't a lot of books that fall short of expectations or disappoint me. That does happen. I feel like art is always to be judged subjectively. You know, I don't want to dissuade somebody who might like a book a lot, but. Well, you're absolutely right. And the reason we ask it is because it is subjective. I mean, there is is this a good book? And there is the question of, is it to my taste? And they are very different questions. And yet the truth emerges in contrast and there are more books out there than anyone could read in a hundred thousand lifetimes. And you got to narrow it down somehow. It's not tell me about a bad book, but a book that wasn't for you. Thank you for liberating me here. I (laughs) just wanted to give a little bit of encouragement. But it's an important question because it does. I find that saying what you love is great, but you may not understand why until you evaluate why other books didn't work as well for you, the reader, the individual reader. Right. I totally agree. And thank you for that. So periodically I'll go to like best of lists and and make sure I'm not missing some great piece of literature that I just didn't hadn't gotten to. And one book that I saw in a number of like best of the 20th century lists was The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I picked it up and to tell you, I didn't connect with it is like, it's an understatement. It was a storytelling style. It, I found the symbolism to be paranoid and weird. And I, I acknowledge maybe I'm not smart enough, but it just felt like it was intentionally opaque. I know it's considered to be in the genre of postmodernist. And I, you know, maybe that genre is not for me, although I have Kurt Vonnegut's in that genre too. And I've liked a lot of stuff from Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, that's interesting. Because I was wondering, knowing that The Crying of Lot 49 is strongly satirical, I was wondering if that tone didn't sit right with you. I I like satirical. Um, I I could think of a lot of examples of satirical that that I do like, but I just... I just could not connect with it at all. I found a lot of it to be just unintelligible and, again, intentionally opaque. So, like, life is too short. I am sort of goal-driven, and so I do try to finish books. It's not I, – I don't often pick up a book and then just drop it. So I finished it, but I didn't, I didn't love that experience. Okay, that's good to know. So, Judd, what have you been reading lately? I just read Linda Sue Park's A Single Shard. I give it a 10. It won the Newbery Medal – I forget how many years ago. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Takes place in Korea in the 1100s, you know, in a town where where pottery is the big trade. And main character is young homeless kid, and he gets an apprenticeship with with the master potter. Anyway, it's just a wonderful story. And then I read a book called Song for a Whale by Lynn Kelly. Again, a middle grade book about a deaf girl who fixes radios. She she can tell if they're working by the vibrations and then she learns of this whale that's out there that for whatever reason its song is at a higher pitch than other whales could understand and so other whales ignore it and it's it's just living this solitary life and she obviously sees some of herself and her inability to connect with her classmates and the whale and she she wants to come up with a, a way to communicate with the whale with with her radio skills and it's really well done and beautiful 
right now I'm reading two books for book festival authors. Um, uh, one is Courting Mr. Lincoln by Lewis Bayard. It's a historical fiction uh, about Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. And at this point in time in the book, Mary meets Abraham, and, and at first she's sort of underwhelmed, but uh, but he grows on her, as, as Lincoln tend, <laughs> tended to do on people. At the same time, she notices that Lincoln's got a very close relationship with his friend and roommate, Joshua Speed, and the question of the book is whether or not there's more to that relationship than just friendship. Lou Byard is an amazing writer. He's, he just writes beautiful sentences over and over. I'm like, how many beautiful sentences can one person have in them? And um, he's a he's a really good researcher, so I, I'm enjoying that book. I'm listening to that. The, the performance on Audible is really good. There's another book which is a debut novelist named Elizabeth Wetmore, and the book is called Valentine. It's hard to believe this one's a, a debut. It's, it's like this cool gritty, hard-boiled story woven around five female characters in in Texas, uh, in oil country in the 1970s, and it unfolds in the aftermath of a a brutal assault of a teenager and how that event sort of touches each of the five characters before and after. I'm only about a third of the way into this thing, but it really seems good. It's dark, but just richly rendered. It's just, it really seems good. So hopefully the last two-thirds will hold up. Well, that caught my eye because they're pitching it as being perfect for fans of Elizabeth Strout and Barbara Kingsolver, two authors that I adore. And also the cover's gorgeous. Maybe you'll give it a shot. I'll be curious to hear what you think. Now, Judd, for what you're looking for in your reading life, more time to read, which the best (laughs) I can do is maybe add some good books to your stack that will motivate you to read them. But we know you've got a lot going on. And do you want to catch up on things you might have missed over the years? Yes. Help me catch up on stuff I've missed over the years. Okay, let's do it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This feels like such a cliche. I know, how many times did I say Lonesome Dove is a great book because it's a great book, not because it's a Western. And lots of people who don't enjoy Westerns enjoy Lonesome Dove. However, I'm really wondering if you've read another Western, The Sun by Philip Meyer. I have not. Tell me about it. First of all, I'm apologizing for recommending a book that's, <laughs> that's very similar to a book you read before. I do think this could be a great fit if you enjoyed Lonesome Dove. And listeners, I think this could be a great fit for you too. The reason that I am hesitant to recommend another Western for a Western is I feel like that's what the algorithms do really well. Like you tell them <laughs> you, you want, you enjoyed a World War II novel about two sisters and what they recommend is a bunch of other World War II novels about two sisters when what you really enjoyed about the book was the way it probed human nature in a really interesting way, which you could do with a Western or a dystopian novel, or maybe even a middle grade novel. So that aside, let's go for the Western. You have mentioned Texas novels several times now, and this is a great Texas novel. And while I don't think this is a reason to recommend it, I did notice that one of your favorite guiding literary quotes is from David McCullough. The Sun follows six generations of a fictional and presumably unrelated McCullough family in Texas. (laughs) So we're just going to go with that. Okay. Like your three favorites, this is about a family that comes to this land and like the characters of Lonesome Dove, like the characters of The Right Stuff, like the characters of Americana, they are navigating unfamiliar terrain and it's hard and they are changed as a result. This is a story that some readers just find too violent to read. So there's a trigger alert for that. But what I like about this for you is it spans 200 years, six generations 
of a family. I can see that you like these sweeping stories that take a long view of people's life. But more than being a story of a family, this is a story about what it, what it means to be human and what it means to fight for survival and what it means to be a person of courage and what it means when you fall short of that. It's a story of human nature, and Meyer sets the tone for that very early in the book. The epigraph he chooses is from Ebert Gibbon, and it says, Fortune buries empires and cities in a common grave. I like that. For a book that answers a reader's question like, who am I? And then who are we collectively? I think this could be a really interesting, engaging way in. I think it sounds great. Certainly as the mayor of a city, I'm not looking forward to knowing you know, what grave we're all going to go into. <laughs> we could call it a cautionary tale. <laughs> but no, that sounds great. Yes, I'm going to put that on the list. Oh, that's a long one. So I'll see if I can not load you up with tons of long, long books so you can you can get your reading time in. Judd, this was really popular for a while. Readers are continuing to read it now. But have you read The Kite Runner by um, Khalid Husseini? Yes, I have. And I really okay. liked it. Okay, good, good, good. That's what I wanted to know. I also like how that one spans many, many years and is about making choices that we are okay with and also making choices that honor each other. So that's what I was thinking about there. How about Zadie Smith? Have you read anything by her? No, I haven't. And I'd like to. I thought of her book, White Teeth, based on the book she really enjoyed. But then I was wondering about The Crying of Lot 49, which is satirical, and so is White Teeth. So I thought, I don't know, is this going to work out? But if you were okay with that, then I think it could be a good pick for you. I am okay with that. Okay. Well, first of all, incredibly, this is her debut, because you said that you've read some debuts recently that make you think, how are you doing this for the first time? This is her debut. It's witty funny, although it definitely has an edge. This is about two diverse families. They're multiracial, living in London. It's set during the last half of the 20th century. What we have here is three families whose lives become intertwined in really interesting, thought-provoking ways. You mentioned that you really liked the phrasing of courting Mr. Lincoln, how the author just keeps on turning out like just really well-written sentences. And I think you'll find that here. Zadie Smith really has a way with words. And while this book isn't plot heavy, she does manage to address many, many topics in a way that's really thoughtful and engaging without feeling like you're sitting in a college lecture. Sounds good. That's White Teeth, Zadie Smith. And finally, for a Gaithersburg author... I'm wondering about choosing the nonfiction novel, The Furious Hours by Casey Kapp. Ah, I have read it. I really thought it was an exceptional work. I I think that's a debut as well. I think that was Casey's first book. I know she's done pieces for New Yorker, but that's a really good book. I'd recommend it too. Yes, you're absolutely right. Well, I'm glad I'm thinking in the right direction. I'm going to take back everything I said about short books. So I'm thinking of The Brothers K by David James Duncan. Is this a Mm -hmm. book you know anything about? No, tell me about it. Oh, it's really long, 645 pages, which to some readers is like, oh, yes, I won't have to decide what to read next for days, maybe even weeks. And to some readers, it's like, oh, it's going to take me forever to cross another book off my list. But I'm glad you have patience because I think this book is worth it. This is a book that is ostensibly about baseball. But like all the books we've discussed, it's about so much more than that. It's about a family going through really hard things that seem disconnected at first, but the author brings it all together in such a beautiful and poignant way. It's also about the Vietnam War and Seventh-day Adventism. 
abusive relationships. He turns it into a story that is incredible and heart-wrenching that spans many, many years and runs around the world a little bit. Um, It's set in the Pacific Northwest. But I think the thing that's truly remarkable about this book is that it shows the family members going through incredibly low moments. I mean, you see them suffer. And yet he's able to show how there is deep joy present even there. And that takes a remarkable talent for an author to be able to do that. And it's a really powerful reading experience. How does that sound to you? That sounds wonderful. And actually, I'm kind of enjoying your struggle with trying to describe and capture what the book is about, because I have this issue with virtually all really good novels. And the point, the reason why I think we have trouble with it is because really good literature is about everything. There can be a plot line, but it's like all of life is sort of contained in, uh, in that thing. And it's, it's hard to capture. Of course, you couldn't really recommend books to just say, oh, this is a great book. It's about everything. Um, <laughs> who's going to read that? I find that it's actually like within those pages, there's a whole world. There's there's all of life in, in those pages. So Yes, that's such a good way to put it. Judd, I love the way you put that. And now I'm going to ask you a hard question. So of the three books we talked about today, The Sun by Philip Meyer, White Teeth by Zadie Smith, and The Brothers K by David James Duncan. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? Okay, and I can't punt and say it's going to be your book next. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe the last one. Maybe the Brothers K, but I'm not sure. It's it's going to depend when I'm in front of the computer and and ready to make a purchase or or go to the library and and borrow something. It's going to depend on my mood at the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to have a working reading plan, and yet I am completely on board with uh, it. Depends what I feel like when it's time to read again. Plan, Judd. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. It's been an honor. You could learn everything about the Gaithersburg Book Festival at our website, gaithersburgbookfestival.org. It doesn't matter where you're from. Even if you're far away, give it some thought. We'd love to have you. Thanks so much, Jen. You bet. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Judd today, and I'd love to hear what you think he should read next. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 232. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Follow Judd on Instagram at judd.ashman and check out the Gaithersburg Book Festival's upcoming digital programming at gaithersburgbookfestival.org. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, follow our show there at Read Next Podcast and follow us on Instagram at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. Sign up to get your free weekly delivery at What Should I Read Next Podcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoyed the show, would you let your fellow book lovers know by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts? Even two sentences is a review. And because of the algorithms, this small action helps us in a big way by helping more readers find the show. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.